In this part of the program, we sometimes do obituaries, and we have quite a pile backed up that we would like to talk about, but um, we're going to talk about none of them today in the wake of having heard about two new names added to the list as of yesterday. And frankly, we don't have time to do them justice today either, but I do want to mention the passing of John Judge. John was a courageous seeker for truth and the head of the Committee on Political Assassinations. Mr. Millen and I had a chance to speak with John back in 2003 when we traveled to Los Angeles to cover the 35th anniversary of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. I last saw John at the conference in Duquesne University this last October on the 50th anniversary of the passing of John Kennedy and would note that he was a tireless worker and a very nice man. And I will have more to say about him in the future. John appears to have died from natural causes, which makes him a sad contrast to that of Michael C. Rupert, who died by his own hand earlier this week. Mike Rupert made, I think, three appearances on this program in years past. I believe the last time we spoke with Mike came after the funeral for Gary Webb, who also died by his own hand, in frustration for what the powers that be did to him over his courageous reporting. Mike Rupert leaves behind a most provocative body of work. We would encourage you, dear listener, to look some of it up. You may not agree with all of it. We may not agree with all of it. But he was a fearless investigator of what we would call deep politics, things that need to be looked into. We are shocked and saddened by the passing of both of these men, and we'll have hopefully a great deal more to say about it on next week's program. We do plan to produce a regular web show next week, even though it is our annual Pledge Drive program. I've been thinking this is something we need to do because of our backlog of material, and that certainly now seems more true than ever. Perhaps the best tribute we can make to both these men is to talk about the work of another investigative reporter, that of Robert Perry. We spoke to Bob Perry many years ago on this show. We need to do so again in the not-too-distant future. We have Gary to thank for the piece he sent us regarding the news from Syria. To quote from Robert Perry in Consortium News, Last August, the Obama administration lurched to the brink of invading Syria after blaming a sarin gas attack outside Damascus on President Bashad al-Assad's government. But new evidence, reported by investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, implicates Turkish intelligence and extremist Syrian rebels instead. The significance of Hirsch's latest report is twofold. First, it shows how official Washington hawks and neocons almost stampeded the U.S. into another Mideast war under false pretenses. And second, the story's publication in the London Review of Books reveals how hostile the mainstream U.S. media remains toward information that doesn't comport with its neocon-dominated conventional wisdom. I'm not going to go on. You're going to have to read the rest yourself, dear listener, but I would note that uh, fresh from the headlines this Sunday, April 3rd, Dateline Beirut, both sides in Syria's bloody civil war, said Sunday that a rural village fell victim to a poison gas attack an assault that reportedly harmed scores of people amid an ongoing international effort to rid the country of chemical weapons. So it does seem that someone is using chemical weapons in Syria, 
And it is odd that uh, the U.S. government said that one thing that would get us involved over there is if Bashar al-Assad's government were to use poison gas. Gee, and next thing you know, someone's using poison gas. Actually, I do have to quote a little bit more from Robert Perry. The next two paragraphs, in fact. In other words, it appears that official Washington and its mainstream press have absorbed few lessons from the disastrous Iraq war launched in 2003 under the false claim that Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein was planning to share hidden stockpiles of WMDs with Al-Qaeda when there was no WMD nor any association being between Hussein and Al-Qaeda. A decade later, in August and September 2013, as a new war hysteria broke out over Assad allegedly crossing President Barack Obama's red line against using chemical weapons, it fell to a few internet sites, including our own, to raise questions about the administration's allegations that pinned the August 21st attack on the Syrian government. The piece goes on. Not only did the U.S. government fail to provide a single piece of verifiable evidence to support its claims, a much-touted vector analysis by Human Rights Watch and the New York Times, supposedly tracing the flight paths of two rockets back to a Syrian military base northwest of Damascus, collapsed when it became clear that only one rocket carried sarin and its range was less than one-third the distance between the army base and the point of impact. That meant the rocket carrying the sarin appeared to have originated in rebel territory. Later in the piece, Perry writes, recognizing Obama's political sensitivity over his red line pledge, the Turkish government and Syrian rebels saw chemical weapons as a way to force the president's hand, Hirsch reported. Writing, this is Seymour Hirsch, in spring 2013, U.S. intelligence learned that the Turkish government, through elements of the MIT, the National Intelligence Agency, and Gendarmerie, a militarized law enforcement organization, was working directly with al-Nusra and its allies to develop a chemical warfare capability. In notes below that, three months later, in the early hours of August 21st, a mysterious missile delivered a lethal load of sarin into a suburb east of Damascus. The Obama administration and the mainstream U.S. press corps immediately jumped to the conclusion that the Syrian government had launched the attack, which the U.S. government claimed killed at least 1,400 people, although the number of victims collected by doctors and other witnesses in the scene was lower. Anyway, we're grateful for the work of Seymour Hirsch and certainly for the work of Robert Perry. We highly recommend his website, consortiumnews.com. You might well want to check it out. Dear listener, Perry closes his piece by noting that like the bloody U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, last year's near U.S. air war against Syria is a cautionary tale for Americans regarding the dangers that result when the U.S. government and mainstream media dance off hand in hand, jumping to conclusions and laughing at doubters. The key difference between the war in Iraq and the averted war on Syria was that President Obama was not as eager as his predecessor, George W. Bush, to dress himself up as a war president. Another fact was that Obama had the timely assistance of Russian President Vladimir Putin to chart a course that skirted the abyss. I'm proud to note that we expressed doubts back last summer that the, uh, the story of the sarin gas attack was all they said it was. Now it appears that our suspicions were more than justified. We do wish the mainstream media would spend more time on stories like this instead of 
Things like the item from Islamabad, which admittedly was newsworthy in its own way. I mean, the BBC certainly thought it was uh, worthy of note. So did the AP. To quote from their story, a Pakistani judge dismissed an attempted murder case Saturday that police lodged against a nine-month-old boy, ending a bizarre case that drew new criticism to the country's troubled criminal justice system. Yes, a nine-month-old boy getting charged for murder does, you know, attract the attention of the news media, much like, you know, a man biting a dog is newsworthy. But we do wish the mainstream media would pay more attention to stories like the one that Seymour Hirsch is writing about. I'm also a little disturbed to note the story coming out of Silicon Valley about a CEO being fired because of his political beliefs. To quote from The Week, to quote from The Week magazine, Tech wizard Brendan Eich last week resigned under duress as CEO of Mozilla, the firm behind the Firefox web browser. Eich's departure came after a campaign by progressive activists and the OkCupid dating website, which had urged its users to boycott Firefox. Eich's crime? Six years ago, he donated $1,000 to support Proposition 8, the 2008 ballot initiative to ban gay marriage in California. Writing in USA Today, Katrina Trinko said belief in traditional marriage was no extreme mindset at the time. In fact, 52% of California's electorate shared Ike's opposition to gay marriage that year, as did the noted homophobes Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, also a majority of Congress and most Americans. Many people's views have since evolved, but when did traditional beliefs become impermissible heresy? In America, we work alongside people with whom we disagree rather than demand that they be fired and banished from polite society. I gotta say, this piece uh, prompts me to surprisingly have to acknowledge the writing of Ben Boychik, who wrote an op-ed piece for the Sacramento Bee, titled, Expelling Ike, comma, Other Enemies of the People, in quotes. It's sad to note that just as we have um, denounced the kind of tactics that Joe McCarthy used in the 50s to attack people from the right. I'm afraid that we have to uh, denounce a contemporary attack now that's coming from the left. It's wrong either way. I did the disclaimer, right? Yes. Okay. I I should reiterate, this is my opinion and not necessarily that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. And I'd certainly hate to imagine that my, quote, political incorrectness, unquote, would induce someone to seek to have me taken off the air. Ms. Maroon does like to chime in. There's plenty of other reasons for that. And what I think I'll do to close the program is to do some pithy quotes. These were sent to us by Candace. I think I'll just pick some random selections here that I think somehow are appropriate for this program without telling you why. Starting with this Turkish saying, which is, the first drink makes you a playful gazelle. The second, a dashing zebra. The third, a roaring lion. And the fourth, a silly jackass again. How about this one from the Illinois State Journal? A good education enables a person to worry about things in all parts of the world. Yeah, I think that's radio parallax. As is this one reportedly from an Oklahoma Rotary Club bulletin. If you can tell the difference between good advice and bad advice... You don't need advice. How about this quote on 
Courtship, reportedly from the Brooklyn Record and Advertiser. Courtship is defined as the period during which the girl decides whether or not she can do any better. I think there's some truth there. As there is in this quote by Nieto del Rio, which is that all too often a clear conscience is merely the result of a bad memory. Well, here's one we don't live by. According to Harlan Miller, conversation should be fired in short bursts. Anybody who talks steadily for more than a minute is in danger of boring somebody. Well, that's a risk we've just decided we're going to have to take. Here's one we like from Woodrow Wilson. I'd rather lose in a cause that one day will win than win in a cause that will someday lose. And our two closers would be first from Wilson Misner. I hate careless flattery, the kind that exhausts you in your efforts to believe it. And finally, one from a man named Dr. Kenneth J. Fabian, which is a sure sign of bureaucracy is when the first person who answers the phone can't help you. And on that note, I think we'd best call it a show. Our thanks to Will Durst and to you, dear listener, in advance for the help I'm counting on you delivering for next week's Pledge Drive program. We really do need your help, and I'm confident that you will deliver. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Bob Seeger. Actually, Douglas Everett with laryngitis, which I hope will be better next week. We'll see you then. Hey!